Okay, good. Anyway, so God is good. Um, a couple of years ago, thanks for the prayer, uh, blessing the speaker, because we need it, right? Uh, a couple of years ago at Campion Academy, there was a man by the name of Daryl Bigger who came from the Northwest who was invited to speak at an alumni. <clears throat> Were you, do you remember that? Were you crumbly there at that, at that alumni? And uh, he has no connection with this part of the country except that Dick, uh, Dick Stinbachen was a military person, and he was a military person, and he was the highest-ranking uh, Navy chaplain for the reserves. And then he retired and so on, and so they invited him to come and speak at, uh, at that because the emphasis that day was on, on, on the weekend was for the military. <clears throat> and so he started out his uh, sermon with this question, and he said, how is a Christian a believer supposed to live in a world that's falling apart? Well, I think I have an answer to that. <clears throat> we live in a world that's going bad the same way that we do if the world is good. Keeping our eyes in the right place, right? Um, the only way to live in this world at all, period, is by keeping our eyes on Jesus and connecting with him. Because if we don't connect with him, we really don't have life. And like Edrey said last Sabbath, um, that we have to connect as Joseph did in a good time and a bad time, when times are dark, when times are good, if we're in prison, whatever, uh, we connect with him. That's, that's what keeps us. So that's what I want to uh, spend a little more time with today. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, <clears throat> they created a gulf between themselves and God that they couldn't fix. There was no way that they could fix that. There was a relational gap that they couldn't solve. And so I was preaching about this in Greeley um, a couple of years ago. And I said, you know, the, the real problem with Adam and Eve and what happened was not the apple or whatever piece of fruit it was, we'll call it the apple. The real problem wasn't the apple. The real problem was disbelief. And a guy comes up to me, so I get done and walking down the aisle, you know, to go to the back and shake hands with people. And this guy comes walking up to me and he says, you know what? He said, that really is true. He says, the apple wasn't the problem. He said, the apple was a symptom. And that's true. But it created a problem that mankind couldn't solve. Have you ever noticed in the world today that, that mankind creates problems and he tries to come up with the answers and they don't work? That the problems are, that man creates are not solvable by man. The problems are bigger than man. But thank the Lord we have a God who's bigger than the problems. And that's where we have to go for the solutions. And so at that particular point, God gives a promise and he says, there's going to be an answer to this. Let me tell you, there's going to be an answer to this. And you find it in Genesis 3.15. And it's like God is talking to the devil and he says, listen, he says, you may, he's talking to the devil, you may have bitten Christ on the heel. But when it's all said and done, he's going to crush your head. So, so while what you do is bad, it's really bad, but it's not fatal, ultimately fatal. But what God's going to do to you is ultimately fatal. 
It's going to crush you and it's going to be over. And when this whole thing is done, it's over. It's going to be all over. Sin isn't going to be anymore. It's a wonderful promise. And so sin came into the world. And the apostle Paul says to us, he says, listen, sin came into this world by one man. See, you're not a sinner because you sinned. You you became a sinner because Adam sinned. Humanity became sinful in Adam. So God, nobody came to you and said, do you want to be a sinner? Do you want to be a saint? We didn't get that option. We just got it. All right? But by the same token, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, by the same token, just like we didn't get the sin problem, we really don't have anything to do with getting righteousness either, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, We get righteousness through one man. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5. And starting with verse 12. Paul says, For just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So... Romans chapter 5, he deals with this problem, and he goes down a little further, and he says the same thing about five times now in Romans chapter 5. He said, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So we get sin through one man, we get righteousness through one man. Just like you get sin, you get righteousness. It's, a, it's really the same dynamic. And, and, and we didn't have anything to do with the sin problem. And in a sense, we don't have anything to do with getting righteousness back other than the fact that we choose it and choose to live for him. Um, but we're not going to create it ourselves. And he goes on and he's, he goes over this about five different ways. He says it about five different ways And then uh, let's go to verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. But he says, these two are not the same. So I kept reading this over and over and over again and saying, what do you mean they're not the same? How can they not be the same? And he says, well, he said, the way you get sin the sin problem is not like the righteousness. I said, well, but you're saying that you get right, you get sin through one man, you get righteousness through one man. What's different about it? And what he says is, he says, well, if you think, if you think sin is bad and effective, he said, righteousness is really effective. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That's what he's saying. So then he comes to another point, which is kind of an interesting point. And there are some, because he talks about the law, and there are some things about the law that are, that are really have been confusing to us as Adventists. And I want to just tell you what I think these particular verses mean in light of them being problematic for Seventh-day Adventists. And he says this in verse 20. He says, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, increase. Now, if, if, if God gave the law for the purpose of taking care of the sin problem, Paul would have said the law was added so that the trespass might decrease. 
But he doesn't say it that way. He says the law was added so that the trespass might increase. Well, what's he really saying? Well, you see, the, the purpose of law is really an awareness tool. It's to make us aware of the problem. And, and he's saying, if you really think that sin is a problem, let me tell you, it is a problem and the law increases it. But let me show you what the real solution is. And he says, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So righteousness comes as a result of having Christ within our life. Now, the sin problem, uh, if you go back to Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> uh, there's some bad news and there's some good news, okay? <laughs> and the bad news is pretty bad. And so go back to Romans chapter 3, and he says, uh, no one is righteous in verse 9. This is really the section I'm out reading out of the NIV. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9, he said, and he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and he says, listen, we're both in the same boat. Don't think just because we're Jews we're better than Gentiles. Jesus not, is really not that way at all. What shall we conclude then? Are, conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, and now he starts pulling little quotations out of the Old Testament, little snippets here and a little snippet there out of the Old Testament to make his point. And he said, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands God. Uh, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You know who that includes? Moi. And it get, it, it, this isn't a pretty picture, really. It it's, gets pretty bad. He said, their, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we might look at this and say, you know what? I've never done anything like that. I don't, my life, I don't ever remember shedding anybody's blood. This isn't me. Yeah, it really is me. Because what he is explaining is human nature, which we all have. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that's what we got. And the point is, what makes this a living, uh, a level playing field, how he levels the playing field between Jew and Gentile and how all of us are all alike, and you can take the worst sin in the world that you can think of. And I always, you know, I always think back on the days when back, and we haven't heard about it for a while, you know, some of the beheadings and things like that that would happen because of terrorism. And I used to think probably maybe that's the worst sin, whatever it is. What levels the playing field is not what we've done. What levels the playing field is what we're capable of doing. That's what levels the playing field. 
And, and we have, as, as believers and Christians, have no step above the worst person in the world, if you want to say it that way. Because we all have the capability. If you put us into the right situation, if we would have been raised as they were raised, if we would have been brought up with attitudes they would have been brought up in, if we would have been like them, we'd have the same potential to do what they have done. This is what levels the playing field. Paul is saying, look, it's not what you do, it's what you're capable. This is your heart. This is the human sinful heart. This is the result of what happened when Adam and Eve did their thing. Because when we, when we disbelieve, disbelief leads to eating apples or whatever. You understand what I'm saying? Disbelief. And I've concluded that the worst sin is the sin of disbelief. If you're going to pick one sin that rises up above anything else, it's the sin of unbelief. That's what leads to all this stuff. And Adam and Eve said, let's see, am I going to choose this one? Am I going to choose this one? Am I going to choose to believe this one? Am I going to choose to believe this one? When you get down to the end and you start talking about the mark of the beast, it's a rerun of Adam and Eve. Are we going to choose this one? Or are we going to choose this one? Which one are we going to serve? Which one are we going to believe in? And today, when you look at when you look at what's happening in our country and you're looking at the world, and I don't know if you've ever felt confused, I have. But we have to say, who is it that we choose to believe? Because if you're going to look for truth, you have to choose which one you believe. <laughs> because you can't believe both. There's too much diversity in what's going on out there. And we were talking about some of these things in our small group. And... Um, I'll tell you, I've had to struggle with some things in my own Christian experience over some of this stuff that's been going on because I've become angry. I've become angry. And it affected my, it affected my spirituality. And so we're talking about this in our small group. And one of our small group people came up and he said, listen, he said, uh, I read something in this book called Desire of Ages. It's on page 509. If you want to go and look at it, the chapter's real short. It's about four and a half or some pages long. It's not very long. But the, but the part, the one little paragraph, he pointed out to and he said, it goes something like this, that Jesus did not involve himself very much in political and national issues. Because he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate is talking to Jesus, and Pilate says, are you a king? He says, yes, I'm a king. He says, I'll admit that I'm a king. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. And then she goes on to say, she says, listen, the thing about it is that all the answers that we're trying to find in the pro for the problems in the world today, they don't work. You know why they don't work? Because the heart hasn't been regenerated yet. What's going to work is a regenerated heart. And only God can regenerate the heart. If we turn to him and let him generate, regenerate the heart, it would take care of a lot of these issues, you see. 
But as long as we have unregenerated hearts and we're trying to solve these with human means, they'll go on and they'll go on and they'll go on and on and on and on because you always have hate, you always have dislike, you always have competition, you always have power and greed and all the rest of it. So it doesn't work very well until you have a regenerated heart. And that's why Jesus, he said, my kingdom is there. It's not here. So this isn't very good news, this heart business. This is us. This is us. This is me. This is you. That's pretty humbling, isn't it, when you look at it that way? But here's the good news. But now, in verse 21, a righteousness from God apart from law has been known to which the law and prophets testify this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all who believe. Uh, the big deal about John and his gospel was to make the point and get people to say and to admit that Christ was the Son of God come down in human form to this earth to save humanity. That was the big question. Sean Boonstra wrote a book, uh, Authentic. It's a daily devotional, came out a couple of years ago. We're just reading it now this year. And he says, for some of the pagan people, it was unthinkable that God would come down and become a man. Unthinkable. They couldn't hardly, they couldn't fathom it. You see, in a, in a lot of religions today, men try to become God. But it's only one God who becomes man. Unthinkable. And that kind of thinking had permeated, evidently, the people in John's day. So by the time John writes his gospel, he's writing about 30 years later after the other three. And by that time, Jesus had kind of filtered down and sort of melted down in the minds of the people. He's a good man. He's a good teacher and so on. John says, no, we need to put him back up on the pedestal appropriately where he belongs. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And then you get down to the end of John, in John chapter, I believe it's 20. <clears throat> it's at the, right at the end of his book, uh, John chapter 20. <clears throat> and he says this, he says in verse 30, John chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John uses the word belief or some form of it 98 times, according to one of my notes in the Bible, 98 times in his book, way more than the other gospels. Why? Because he's trying to get people to believe in him. And Jesus is the, he refers to himself, you know, he said, I'm the rock, I'm the water, I'm the light, I'm the lamp, I'm the shepherd, I'm the gate, I'm the this, I'm the that, I'm the, you know, I am the source of life. And when you separate from the source of life, as Adam and Eve did, then death results. Why? Because he's the life giver. So if we separate from him, what do we have? Huh? Sure. No life. The apple wasn't poisonous. <laughs> it, was a, it was a belief issue. So here you have this, this troubling text, and I, I, wanna, I want to um, uh, 
take it, take this thing a direction about this troubling text. And I want to go, I uh, want to take you to Galatians chapter two, chapter two and chapter three, by the way, it is uh, a belief of mine that every Seventh-day Adventist ought to have a working knowledge of Galatians and Romans. We ought to study those books and study them because this is what brings law and grace and so on together. <clears throat> a correct understanding of Galatians and Romans. Um, hermeneutics is a word that means the science of understanding of how to interpret scripture. So um, what we have in a lot of Christian circles today is the fact that the law of God is no longer in effect, okay? That, that's what we hear in Christian circles. That's, that's hermeneutically unsound. When you, when you study Paul's writings, Galatians and Romans particularly, that's an unsound hermeneutical uh, translation or interpretation of it. Paul nowhere, anywhere, does he ever say anything or teach that? He teaches something different. And that's what I want to take a little bit of look at because we do have some texts that say, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law, for example. You have in Colossians, Jesus took the law away, nailing it to the cross. Um, and so what do those things mean? And I want to share with you what I think it means. Um, as we go through this. So go to Galatians chapter 2. And uh, Paul is talking about how we become justified. How do we have standing with God? How do we close this relational gap that has been created by the sin of mankind? How can we do that? How? Uh, and by the way, God did never run away from us. You know, God was not part of creating the gap. Humanity created the gap. We didn't create, uh, God didn't create the gap. He didn't run from us. We ran from him. And so he, he says in, in uh, Galatians chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 15, we know we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law. See, so, so we can conclude, oh, well, the law isn't, you know, it's not in effect. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He says, we just can't be justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, now follow this. This is kind of, it's really not confusing. Just follow this. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, what he means by that, he's saying, when I tried to be a law keeper, and I tried to be justified by doing law. He said, I found out I couldn't do it. And I had to die to that method. 
and I had to come up with a different one. Through the law, I died to the law. Um, he said, when I was, you go to Philippians chapter three and, uh, and Paul says, he says, I know. He says, you talk about, you talk about legalistic righteousness, man, I had it. He said, I knew what tribe I was from. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, I was uh, a law, I kept the law. I was a Jew. I was, I did everything right. Faultless. He said everything. He said, I had no problem. But then he said, when Jesus came into my life, it was all rubbish. See, it all became rubbish. And he said, I wouldn't have known what sin really was unless I read it in the law. Thou shalt not covet. When I read that, then I knew. And he says, before I knew all of that, I thought I was alive. When the law came along, I actually died. You see, what law does is law is a, law is a legal document. You take the principles of God and you put them into a legal document. And you write it on tables of stone. Why did God write his principles on tables of stone? Because they lost it in the heart. There's only two places you can write the law of God. Either in the heart or on the outside on stone. And the reason he put it on stone was because they lost it in the heart. Now they needed it. They needed it out there. And it has a function. And he said, I wouldn't have known what sin was unless I read it there in the law. That's what helped me. But then it says, I had to go someplace else for the solution. Okay, we're going to, let's just go on here a little bit. Um, Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And then he says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And I'm going to guarantee you that Christ didn't come here and die for nothing. If we could have been saved through law keeping and through law, Christ wouldn't have come to do what he did. That was a horrible thing. Would you have wanted to do that? I wouldn't have wanted to do that. Christ didn't want to do that. He didn't want to come here and go through all of that to save us from our sin. But he did it because he loved us. And the life we live, we live by faith. How? Because Christ lives his life through us. And then in verse 6 of the next chapter, he says, consider Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And and God credits him. He considers him righteous even though he still has problems in his life. That, that was the, and, and what he says in the next chapter, he says, the reason God was able to credit righteousness to Abraham was because Abraham believed that God had power to do what he had promised. If God promises something, he'll do it. And Abraham believed it. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you descendants. Abraham doesn't have any of those. He goes on for years and years. 
And finally, he and his, uh, you know, they worked out this deal with the maidservant. Let's help God out a little bit. And Hagar has a son. And all along for 17 years or however old Ishmael is, Ishmael thinks he's the promised son. And one day God, uh, Abraham comes to him and he says, uh, listen, <clears throat> God revealed to me, uh, you ain't it. You're not it. Can you imagine the devastation that went through Ishmael's mind? You're not it. Uh, and, and this was an illustration of, well, let's help God out a little bit. God doesn't need our help. In fact, he doesn't want our help, in a sense. He wants our cooperation. And when Isaac came along, this was the result of God's promise. It was all God. There was no question about that. Now, let's make one clarification, little point. There were physical relations between Abraham and Sarah. There had to be. Okay, Isaac was not a God-man. He was a man-man. But it was obvious because of their age and inability to have children that it was all God. And that's the point he's trying to make. And because Abraham believed that God could do what he had promised, that's why, that's what it says in chapter 4, that's why God promised him and credited him righteousness. And then, and then he goes on, Paul goes on to say, and it wasn't just for him. Those words weren't just for Abraham. They're also for us who believe that God can do what he promised. He'll credit us righteousness too. Consider Abraham. All who rely, verse 10, chapter 3 of Galatians, all who rely on observing the law are under curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one will be justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Or you could flip that over and say, the man who fails to do these things is going to die by them. And that's exactly what happens. You see, you could be saved by law keeping. Leviticus 18.5 says, do this and live. But the law isn't the problem. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, For what the law could not do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son. The law has good intentions. And what it means when the law is trying to do something means what we're trying to do when we try to keep it. We try to be justified that way. It doesn't work. What the law could not do, God did by sending his son. So it, it's a matter of our sinful. The problem isn't with the law. The problem's with me. When I try to keep it, it doesn't work. It never has. It never will. And so our faith is what we put in. So then he goes on and he talks about um, this thing with, uh, with Abraham. And he says in verse 15, now in Galatians, follow this now. Because God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. 
He doesn't say, Abraham, if you do this, this, and this, I'll do it. God simply says, I'll do it. He says, I promise you, I'll do it. And it's based on a promise. Um, a promise is a one-sided agreement. I promise you, I'll do this. So I can make a two-sided agreement with you about my pickup truck. I can say, I'll give you my pickup truck. That's a promise. You don't have to do anything. I just give it to you. A two-sided, well, let's work out an agreement. I want this much. You say, I'll give you that much. I'll pay you this much a month until I get it. I keep the title. You pay it off. See, that's a two-sided. God didn't make a two-sided agreement with Abraham. It was a one-sided. I promise you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Verse 15 of Galatians, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly, duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but to and to your seed, who is Christ. So it was the Abraham and Christ uh, thing that he's talking about here, the promises Abraham was kind of on the physical side of it. Jesus was kind of on the spiritual side. I think that's what he's trying to say there. But he says in verse 17, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later. So you have the promises to Abraham in about the 2000 BC and about four or 500 years. He uses the word 430 here. About that much time later, the law comes along afterwards. And Paul says, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So he promises Abraham, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. When the law comes along 430 years later, it does not all of a sudden supersede the promise. Right? See what, see what he's saying? The law didn't take over then. So then he asks a question. Because my security in Jesus is not based on law. It's based on promise. A one-sided agreement with God. And then he asks the question, what then was the purpose of the law? Now follow this. This is, this is very interesting what, what he says next. It was added. See, just like in Ephesians, it said it was added so that the trespass might increase. Okay, here it's added. It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. Follow those words? It was added until. Are the principles of God eternal? Yes. But here he says the law was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. It looks like there's something temporary about the law. And this is what we can't bypass this, folks. You can't look at this and say, it doesn't fit what we believe. It doesn't fit what we've taught. It doesn't fit what we say. So therefore, we just kind of, we don't know for sure. And we buy, no, you can't bypass this. Hermeneutically, you have to look at it. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added until the seed should come. Is there something temporary? What's temporary about this? The law was put into effect 
through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. A mediator represents two parties to make an agreement between two people. But he's saying here, this is God is just one. God is a one-sided promise to us. I'll do this for you. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who do what? Believe. Now, before this faith came, We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And that text has given a lot of heartburn to a lot of of us over the years. Particularly some of our earlier um, people. Those of us who are familiar with the Minneapolis meeting in 1888, this was the primary text they were dealing with, and they had a hard time with it, and some of our leadership were pushing back against it. That's a whole different story in and of itself. But here's the progression now. So let me say something before we go on. So now that faith has come, you're no longer under the supervision of the law. The old King James says, now that faith has come, uh, the law is a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ, right? So the schoolmaster was like, like a, um, um, not the teacher, but the, um, what would you call it? Huh? Like a principal or like a teacher's aide or something like that. So you would have a teacher's aide is help the students with the lessons, all of that. But the real answer is bring them to the teacher. See, you got to go to the teacher. If you're really going to learn, it's not me. We got to take you to the teacher. Um, so in, in my note here in the scriptures, there's another, uh, we're going to go on and read this now a little bit more, but think, think in a, think of a plantation operation. So you have a plantation owner with children and you have a plantation owner with servants. And Paul says, a servant does not inherit the operation. A son inherits the operation. A servant does not. So if you think in that concept. Okay, and he says, like, he says what this, what this text is saying, it's kind of like a personal slave attendant to a freeborn boy. So what we're going to read now is you have a boy who's going to inherit the operation, but he's little, he can't do it, he's not mature enough, he has to be under the basic principles and rules and laws of his father because he's not free yet to take over. But once he reaches a certain point, the father gives him the operation and says, you take over. And he's not a slave, he's not a servant, he's not under rules, he's not under regulations. He comes in as a mature individual taking over. That's what God is looking for. God is not looking for people who are going to be Christians and believers and followers because they have to follow rules and regs. The rules and regs are okay, but they're not following rules and regs. They're mature, loyal, committed, intelligent, Children. 
And it's this legal part, you see, because when you bring in a legality, when you bring in a law, you make it legal. And legal will get you every time. You break it, you pay. All the time, every time. Guilt, condemnation, death follows. All the time, every time. Every single time. And God takes these children of Israel. He gives them these rules, this law. And he says, here, this is, we need this right now. But I want to move you past that into something that's better and more mature. So follow this. And he says, you are all sons of God. You're no longer under the supervision of the law. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is this, that as long, chapter 4 now, as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born on a law, under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. That's the deep relational relationship between a father and a son, and between us and God. The law is, the law is not going to go away. Here's a perfect illustration of this. Oh, in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God made you also an heir. Here's a perfect illustration of this, <clears throat> the best one I've ever heard. <clears throat> Have you ever heard that program from several years back called The Nanny? It was a television program, and uh, uh, The Nanny uh, would come into dysfunctional families and help them put their family back together. That was her, that was her job. <clears throat> and she would spend time with them, uh, over a course of maybe a month or two or something, spending time in the family, didn't necessarily live with them, spend a lot of time with them. And there was this one family, a father and a mother, both professionals. I don't know if they were lawyers or doctors, both professionals, something. And they, I think, had three kids. And I'll tell you, it was a train wreck. It was an absolute train wreck. Um, the kids misbehaved. They didn't pay any attention. They did what they wanted to. They threw their clothes around. Uh, it, it was a mess. It was just a mess. And she's trying to get this all straightened out. And she's working with the kids and working with the kids and trying to help understand they're part of the family and so on and so forth. And I'll tell you, she wasn't getting anywhere. So one day she came down out of the came down out of the out of the upper story, down the stairs, and she had in her hand a whiteboard. And on the whiteboard, she had written nine rules. It was too bad it wasn't ten. It have been a perfect illustration, but you got the idea. She wrote nine rules. You will obey your mom and dad. You're not going to fight with your siblings. You're going to pick up after yourself. You're not going to throw food at the table. You're going, to wa you're going to help wash the dishes. You're going to help wash the chores and all this kind of thing. Nine rules, okay? <clears throat> Why did she have to write nine rules? Because they lost it in here. 
if they would have had it in here, she wouldn't have had to write the nine rules. And once, once she gets this family back where they need to be, those nine rules don't go away. In fact, maybe sometimes you might have to bring it down again, but hopefully she can take the nine rules and take it upstairs and put it somewhere away. Not everybody has to have it. They're there. They're never going to go away. That stuff doesn't go away. I mean, come on. It doesn't go away. But you don't want people to live on rules. What God is looking for is a people who are mature, loyal, dedicated Children of God who don't have to be told every little single thing to do. They're mature enough to figure it out for themselves. That's what he's looking for. And, and the legal part of it, to take his principles and put it into a legal form, he's saying to his people, that's not what I want. And I think that that's what Paul is saying when he says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. I think that's what he means. And when he says in Ephesians, he says, and the trespass, the law was so that the trespass would increase, was to make us aware it's a tool of awareness. I think that's what it means. And you take the law and you want to take that away. It's not going to go away and the principles don't change and nothing changes. But we want to become full-blown sons and daughters of our Savior who love us, and we love him, and we're responsible. That's what I think he's saying. And for, for me, that clears up these texts. Because they've been a problem for us. We don't know what to do with them. And I think that's what he means. <clears throat> In conclusion... <clears throat> The law is not a set-aside, standalone entity as a total expression of God's will to give life to those who observe it. Je Jesus does that. Righteousness by faith. And Vindens used to say, it's not righteousness by faith, it's righteousness by faith in Jesus. If you say righteousness by faith, it makes you think that my faith is going to happen. No, your faith doesn't happen. Your faith grasps a hold of him. It's righteousness by faith in him. The law is an expression of God's eternal character brought down to sinful man as a black and white printed legal document as a temporary tool for the from the time of Sinai until the coming of Jesus, who is the personal, personified, impeccable, powerful, and effective means to cover our sins and change our lives by changing our hearts. The character of God does not change, and neither does the law of God, and it doesn't go away. However, God does not want to relate with us legally under law, but rather relationally from a mature respect and love on our part. The law is designed as a temporary tool of awareness of our sin and to bring us to Jesus as the solution to that problem. The process is the same for each of us individually during the process of our own lives. Now, <clears throat> Romans 6 one text, and then one point. All of this is pulling it together. <clears throat> the people said, <clears throat> and Jesus was working with them, and he said he was the bread of life, 
And he said, I tell you the truth, they just got done with the miracles, you know, of feeding the 5,000, uh, I believe is what, uh, yes, just, uh, he says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous loaves, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils work for the spirit in the heart. And then they said to him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Listen to this. This is cool. What must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's amazing. Christianity is not about not sinning. It's about how to live for God. This whole business of what I've said this morning is only theory. It's only theory. Until you seek God meaningfully and have a meaningful relationship with him. It's only theory until you get to that. And many people put their faith, the fact that they just understand all this, and then that's it. No, it, it's only theory until we seek him and have a meaningful relationship with him. Seek God. Get out your Bible. Study the gospel. Read the gospel. Pray to the Lord. Show yourself to me. I want to know you better. And it's been a, a great experience in my life.